Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. Today, we return to my interview with Kay Holocamp, who goes to Africa every summer and studies hyenas, just like in the nature documentaries I'm always talking about. When I started my biology degree at the age of 18, I sort of assumed that I would either be a medical doctor or a field biologist. Something like 90% of our biology students coming in thinking they want to be medical doctors. Maybe 5% of them actually become doctors. That's a lot of biologists who need stuff to do. So I'm pushing our biology students to get more involved in things like wildlife conservation, ecotourism, law, public policy, Kay Holocamp has trained a whole lot of field biologists. Her website has an elaborate application procedure for joining her lab, so she's clearly thought about these issues a lot. Before we hop back into that stream of consciousness, though, I just want to mention that the first part of this interview is a repeat of the first bit of episode 32. That's on purpose, because I thought it flowed better that way. If you're listening to these two episodes back-to-back and you find the repeat annoying, feel free to skip ahead two minutes and 15 seconds. How long have you been working uh, in Africa and with hyenas specifically? Well, I started this hyena project officially with NSF support in 1987. Uh, So we set up our camp and actually started working with the hyenas in in the spring of 1988. And you were the PI of that the whole time? That's right, yes. Yeah, so I've had continuous NSF support for that since then. So uh, what did you do before? I mean, some, you know, some graduate students, I think, sort of inherit their projects from their mentors. Were you, did you do field biology all the, all the way through? Yes, but I didn't start working with hyenas at all um, until that point. I mean, I started going to Kenya in 1985 to see if I wanted to work on hyenas, see if I was any good at it, uh, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed it, so I, I decided to pursue it. But before that, I had been working mainly on ground squirrels for my Ph.D. and postdoctoral work. In the States? Yeah, I worked on two separate populations of populations of Belding's ground squirrels in the Sierra Nevada of California, and then uh, for my postdoc, I was working on California ground squirrels, uh, which are the ones, the big ones that live along the coast of California. So how do you then just say, I'm going to go to Kenya and try it out? I mean, that seems like kind of a, a leap. Well, I mean, how, how do you, how do you uh, go about that? Um, it, it was interesting, actually. Uh, the guy who had been my Ph.D. mentor at, at UC Berkeley, after I graduated, uh, got hyenas at Berkeley, and he found keeping them in captivity uh, for a couple of years that, whereas in nature females are always socially dominant to males in that species, in captivity the males were just as likely to dominate the females as vice versa. And so I was just up there um, having lunch with him one day when I was during my postdoctoral period, and he said he told me about this result, and he said, you know, it would be really interesting if somebody were to go out to the field and study social development in these animals to understand how they come to understand their ranks and fit into this complex society. And he said, I thought you'd be a good person to go do that. And I said, yeah, well, I've wanted to do something like that since I was six years old. Where do I sign? And he said, oh, you just need to go get some NSF support and do it. So uh, it took a while, but ultimately that's what, exactly what happened. I was looking at your website, and you screen 
your students a lot more than I see other other you know certainly other lab based scientists doing. Right. How hard is it to get to be a field biologist? Because my students, you know, they they sort of think as they're coming in, pretty much here at this particular school, everybody comes in believing they're going to go to medical school or right. dental school. But how hard is it to become a field biologist? Well. It's actually not hard. Um, what's become sort of difficult these days is to get experience trying it out to see if you like it. We've had a number of kids come out and work on my project for a year, and they thought they were going on to medical school too, but they just fell in love with you know working out in, in, in the wild. And uh, it's worked the other way too, though. I've had people come out who decided after working for me for a year, for example, in Kenya, that they said, oh, I think I'm going to go to medical school instead. Thank you very much. So it works both ways, and it, you know, it's just fi uh, hard to find the experience to, to know whether there's a good match between your particular interests, what you like to do, and, and, and field by So is the sort of application process you outline on your website, is that an effort to try and preemptively do those matches so that you don't, you know, waste somebody's time out in Kenya or? Yeah, that that is actually a lot of it. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people have a very sort of glorified, glamorized view of what field biology is like. And we know from lab-based science that there's, you know, a fair amount of tedium in, in the scientific process. Just, you know, often collecting data is, you know, can, can be uh, sort of a slow and difficult process. And that's not different in nature. Uh, you know, so so if people come out thinking they're going to be, you know, um, doing a National Geographic sort of lifestyle, <laughs> that's that's a bad thing from my point of view. I need people who are very realistic about what they're getting into and really um, love the work and are willing to put up with mosquitoes and dust and, you know, hot temperatures and all this other stuff that comes with it. We have to, our biggest bane of our existence is keeping our vehicles running because we're Obviously, studying large carnivores, you can't do that on foot. So you have to do everything from cars. And that is a very unpleasant part of field work, if you ask me. But nevertheless, I think it's worth it. Yeah, I was watching uh, the Kratt Brothers. They have a, a show called Be the Creature, and they were trying to chase these African wild dogs. And that came through completely in there. Uh, they tried five different times to follow this pack on a hunt, and every time their car broke down. <laughs> That's funny. They There's no roads. That's right. It's really hard on the cars. Yeah, the Kratt Brothers actually came and did an hour-long show on, on our hyenas, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's cool. I didn't see that one. That's sort of the problem with, with nature films in general, I think, and that one of the reasons I sort of brought it up is because I love those things. But I, I'm not sure how many people realize that that is a, high, you know, a highly edited, it's <laughs> like you know, Sports Center's highlight reel. Oh, yeah, I do. How much time do you guys spend out in the field per summer, say? Well, I've got students working there right now year-round. I usually have um, a number of Kenyans and American students there all, all year. And I'm able to go from roughly the 1st of April to the end of July. So that's that's as much as I can sneak away from here. But my grad students usually join the lab, and then they rotate into the field and stay out there for a couple of years collecting the data that they need for their own dissertations. So they're actually gone for two years. And how often do they come home to the States during that two years? Some students um, actually... Uh, come back about once a year to visit family and so forth. But I know I've had a couple who just stayed over there and never never did come home until the end of their dissertation data collection. Because that's one of the things that we end up dealing with with our students every time we sort of push study abroad and things like that. Sort of amazing how many of our students have really never been away from home. And 
two years. Wow. Yep, it's quite a commitment, right? Anything you're you're particularly working on right now that you just I know you do a, you quite do quite a bit of media outreach with the the columns and things in the Times, right? That's right. Yeah, I try to because you know I'm I'm head of the Species Survival Commission for the Hyena Day for the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and um, there, there are four hyena species left on the earth, two of which are very severely endangered, and the reason that um, they're endangered is because people think hyenas are awful. So that is one reason I actually do try to do a fair amount of media outreach to try and show people that the animals are actually really interesting and cool instead of awful. Well, that's the in the United States, the wolf underwent this same sort of transformation, right? The wolf right. was evil, and now the wolf is noble, that's right? Exactly it, right? They've had a they've had a public relations makeover, and that's they really right. sort of fit the same place as the hyenas do, don't they? I mean. You've, their biggest problem is that they got grizzly bears coming and stealing their kills, right. which they killed on their own. And then the the spotted hyena has the same problem with lions, right? That's, that is, that's exactly right. So, how, how do you go about doing one of those one of those PR makeovers for a species? Do you have any way of tracking, like what the what the public image is? Um, unfortunately, not in a quantitative way. I've certainly got my, you know, my own subjective impressions about how things are changing. It used to be the case that um, tour vehicles would come and they'd pull up to a scene where hyenas were feeding on a kill or whatever, and we timed them. We'd, they'd literally stay for a total of 38 seconds. And I remember thinking to myself, why didn't they just stay home and watch that on TV then? Because they've paid thousands of dollars to come to Africa to see this kind of thing. And now people stop and they actually spend a quite a long time watching the hyenas in many cases. So I view that as a good sign in terms of people actually being more interested in them and understanding that they're actually interesting. But that's kind of quantitative, though. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's the kind that's of right. thing that that's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I, I work a little bit here in, in North Carolina with the Audubon Society. And they're all and we're also always sort of thinking about, you know, just getting the public more involved in nature in general. But it, it's difficult. I mean, the you know the Madison Avenue types do all this kind of parsing of audiences and that sort of stuff, but but I don't know any scientists who know how to do that. Right, I know it's hard. <laughs> but you know, along those lines, um, uh, the National Academy of Science has this program they call the Science and Entertainment Exchange, where they have scientists consult with Hollywood types. Uh, they've got a, a website, uh, and you. When I first heard about it, I assumed you had to be a member of the National Academy in order to, to serve as a consultant, uh -huh. but it turns out that's not true. I just joined up with it like two weeks ago. So that's another, you know, sort of avenue where, you know, I actually read, you know, your, your sad story about uh, on the webpage how Disney didn't listen to you all no, that's the first time, but maybe other people would. Yeah, no, I think that's that's right. Well, I'll definitely go look into that. Thank yeah, because I mean, I think the the change in public perception of the timber wolves took took you know 50 years or something like that, or even more. It's yeah. not complete, and it takes a long time, right? and you know, I don't I don't know if hyenas have 50 years. Right. <laughs> we got to uh, you know figure out some way to accelerate those processes. That's true. That would that would really be a very very enormous boon for conservation. Well, thank you. So there it is. The next cool thing. Screw the whales. Save the hyenas. Hop on the activist bandwagon early, and you'll be able to say, 
Man, I've been in a hyena since 2012. Where you been? Actually, I think one secret will be to get more women involved in conservation. It's like ladies' night downtown at the club. There's never a men's night. Because if you can get women into the club, the dudes will just show up and they'll pay for the privilege of being there. Dr. Holocamp was all about serious biologists doing serious work, but there's also something to be said for simply getting a big, dumb, critical mass of people to pay attention to your issue. The That's all the time we have for this week. Tune back in and in between episodes, please check us out on Twitter or Facebook where I just figured out how to post every single episode in one super convenient spot. In Facebook, just click on the podcast, then click on the episode you want to hear. I checked. It will continue playing even if you go over to another tab or window. Mmm, technology. BSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, with editing help from Lauren Branch at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.